on a Labor Day vacation tonight, I'm not sure. But I'm glad that uh, you're here this evening, especially uh, David tells me that it's Doug and Jane's 40th anniversary. Is that right tonight? Maybe that wasn't supposed to be told. I don't know. But uh, glad that uh, you all didn't take an anniversary trip or anything and that you're here uh, tonight. And congratulations on that. I don't know if uh, Danny had thought about what our, our word was this week or if that was just coincidental, but he couldn't have picked a better uh, song really to introduce our lesson this evening than Give Me the Bible because our word tonight is inspiration. Now, interestingly, the word inspiration might not even appear in your Bible depending upon what translation you're using. Our English word, inspiration, comes from a Latin root, a spirare, that means to breathe, and it's related to the noun spiritus, which is uh, literally breathing. That's where we get our noun spirit from. Of course, that's not up there. That's Greek. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, But the point is this idea of uh, spirare, uh, breathing or a breath in Latin that our English word inspiration comes from, that makes this really close to the Greek concept of pneuma, wind, spirit, breath, and its cognates. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's good to see how these words are related here. But in the King James Version, inspiration only appears twice. Once is in Job chapter 32 in verse 8, where it translates a Hebrew word that just means breath, and it's rendered as breath everywhere else, and in fact, if you have a more modern translation, it's going to say breath there. I'm not entirely certain why they decided to render it as spirit or inspiration there in the first place. But the other instance, of course, is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word inspiration is extremely rare, and you can see there we have it. Uh, There we go. (laughs) Sorry about that, Barbara. I threw her by starting with that Latin business that I didn't even have on the the hand, the uh, slides there. That word, theonustos, is extremely rare. This is the only place we find it in the New Testament. And in fact, this, as far as we know, is the first usage of it. In other words, if you go looking in secular Greek documents, a lot of times we're doing these word studies. We'll talk about the way it was used out in the wider world. This wasn't used anywhere else. As far as we know, when Paul uses it here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is the first time this word was ever used. So that suggests that Paul probably coined it. Paul probably invented this word to convey precisely what he was attempting to say here in this text. It only becomes common when it's used by Christian authors starting in the 3rd and into the 4th century. So in other words... A lot of times we've talked about how you can't just look at a word's etymology, uh, that is where a word comes from, its root meanings, because words change when they start to be used. But that's not the case here because this hasn't ever been used anywhere else. 
So we have to look at its etymology, at what those roots mean, to try to determine just what Paul's saying here. And that word literally means God breathed. In fact, if you were listening when Rock read it a few moments ago, that's what it says. It's what it says in the ESV. It's what it says in the New American Standard, other modern translations. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's a compound word, and you can probably recognize the two parts even if you don't speak Greek. Theos, that first part there, that sounds like theism or something like that. That's the word for God. That probably makes sense. And then the next part, noustos, that comes from uh, pneuma, which is the word for wind or breath or spirit. If you recognize, say, pneumonia in that, that's where that comes from, you know, relating to your lungs there. Uh, so God breathe is what it literally means. And that's important because we use inspiration pretty casually in contemporary discourse. When we say a song or a poem is inspired, uh, we just mean that the artists that produced that, they're a, a sort of genius. They had sort of some sort of human-type inspiration that caused them to produce that. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Scripture. This isn't the subjective work of some religious genius. And it doesn't mean that when we read it, we feel inspired in some way. That is, you know, some stirring deep within us. The point is, literally, this is the product of God's breath. God is the author of Scripture. It is a divine product. That word for breath is often translated as spirit. It's the same word in Greek and in Hebrew, for that matter. That is, uh, the word that's translated as breath can also be translated as spirit. We have to read the context to decide how we need to translate that. But you can see where those things are, are used together, where we're not even sure how to translate it or where conceptually those things are linked uh, repeatedly in Scripture. God's breath or God's spirit are both active in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, remember, the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. God formed man from the dust and he breathed the breath of life into him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Or putting these two concepts together of the word and breath or spirit, the psalmist, the 33rd Psalm, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their host. And, of course, the breath or the spirit of God is also particularly notable in prophecy. Uh, Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, comes to mind. This is the passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes on there to talk about all the things that are transpiring in his ministry to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So, in other words, the breath or the Spirit of God are closely associated with his word and with his creative power in scripture over and over and over again. And we can better understand that when we think about that frequent phrase we encounter in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. How many times do we find that? It literally appears hundreds of times, particularly in the prophets. And when the prophets say, thus says the Lord, 
what they're claiming is that they're messengers from God. The words that they're bringing are literally God's words. He's the author of what they're saying. Every word spoken has to come from God or else a prophet would be a false prophet. And of course, we recognize that God is often said to speak through a prophet as well. So whatever a prophet says in God's name, that's God speaking. God is breathing out those words just as if he had literally said them himself in your hearing. And that means to disbelieve what a prophet says is to disbelieve what God says. And that makes it a very serious thing. So these verses, thus says the Lord, and a prophet speaks, delivers an oracle. Those verses don't claim that everything we find in the Old Testament is God's word. I mean, reading those in context, they're only making a claim for the oracle that they're bringing, thus says the Lord, and then they deliver their message. And of course, we know that sometimes people other than God are speaking in the Old Testament. Read through the book of Job, for instance, and that's a, a dialogue between Job and his friends. So we obviously have other speakers. In fact, some of them are delivering messages that are not in keeping with the Word of God. But the upshot of this is that within the Old Testament, we have written records of God's Word, what God speaks. But what I want us to realize is that while in context, thus says the Lord, just applies to those prophetic oracles, when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament makes clear that in some sense, all of the Old Testament, not just those prophetic sayings, all of the Old Testament is regarded as God's word. When Paul talks about Scripture there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and he says that all of it is breathed out by God, what's Paul talking about when he's talking about Scripture? He's talking about the Old Testament. Uh, Paul didn't have his leather-bound New Testament to carry around yet. It wasn't compiled yet. In fact, he was still writing it at the time. So when Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he's talking about the Old Testament in its totality. Uh, and you can see that back in verse 15 too. Uh, he's talking here to Timothy and how he's been instructed in Scripture. He says, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Those sacred writings. He's talking here about the Old Testament. We have a, a similar indication of the character of Old Testament writings from Peter. 2 Peter 1, verse 21, he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's not denying that human personality has a part in producing Scripture. It's, it's men who spoke, he says there. But they didn't decide what they were going to speak. God was the one who told them to speak. And as we read through the New Testament, uh, in several places it makes these sorts of claims about the Old Testament, about it being entirely the Word of God. Uh, Jesus says that the Word in Scripture is unbreakable. John chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus rebukes Satan not only by quoting from Scripture, he quotes from Deuteronomy, you remember when the devil tempts him, but he actually says, 
that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul claims that what he preached didn't come from men. It was the word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And I've always thought one of the most interesting examples to, to demonstrate this comes sort of back-to-back from Hebrews. Uh, one in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and the other one in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Now, the Hebrews writer quotes the exact same psalm in both of these passages, but in one place he says, David says this, and in the other passage he says, the Holy Spirit says this. Well, who said it? David or the Holy Spirit? They both did. In other words, you can't separate the divine author and the human author out in Scripture. The source, even when a human being is the one who's mediating it, is still ultimately the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God. So the point of this, it's pretty clear, even if in context, Thus says the Lord only applies to those prophetic oracles. The New Testament reveals to us that all of the Old Testament is regarded as the product of God. It is his word. He inspired it. He breathed it out. Well, what about the New Testament? At two places in the New Testament, we find it being called Scripture right alongside the Old Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 Peter classifies Paul's writings as Scripture right alongside the Old Testament. In fact, it's in a passage where he says that Paul wrote a lot of things that were hard to understand. That should make us feel good if we have trouble understanding Paul sometimes because Peter had some trouble too. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul quotes Jesus, and he doesn't just paraphrase him. He quotes Jesus as it's written down in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and he calls it Scripture. So in other words, Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the product of God. This is the word of the Lord inspired by him. Paul, when he says that, is referring to the Old Testament. But the New Testament makes clear that Scripture was being added to. The books of the New Testament then are breathed out or inspired by God also. And you can see that implied pretty strongly in the way some of the New Testament writers talk about their own works. Paul says in a passage we looked at this morning in Bible class in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, he says, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. Sounds a lot like thus says the Lord, doesn't it? Paul wanted his letters to be circulated and read before the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27. They needed to hear his message. And in fact, in one place, he says that you need to swap letters, uh, Colossians 4, 16. Uh, you get the letter from Laodicea, read it, and be sure when you've read this, when you send it on to them. The whole point of all of this is that from beginning to end, the Bible claims to be authoritative. It claims that its source is, is God. He breathed it out. As some other later writers have rightly summed this up, it's the very language of God. That's the way Justin Martyr put it. Or Gregory of Nyssa, a fourth century church father, said, it is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Those things are right on. And that's precisely what Scripture claims for itself. 
Now, I think it's important here for us to note that while Scripture is the product of God, it's breathed out by God, we can't really say more than that about how it happens. We don't have any details, no process specified here about how this is produced. And I think a a lot of the time where we get into trouble in trying to explain inspiration is trying to, to refine it too much and go beyond what Scripture says and to not just sort of accept that some things lie in the realm of mystery. What we can say is that the Bible itself presents different models to us for how this process works. Now, the prophets is we... The prophets, as we've said, thus says the Lord. Now, that implies that God delivered this message to them verbatim, doesn't it? That is that uh, they're acting like a herald from a king here, but it's almost like a dictation-type model. God says this, and I'm delivering the message verbatim just the way that he gave it to me. So it expresses that they're stating precisely what God said and exactly the words that he used. But... That wouldn't apply to some other parts of Scripture, at least not in that same way. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk's oracles there are in the form of questions. He's asking questions of God. Or what about the psalmist? How many of the psalms are the psalmist uh, complaining to God? The sixth psalm is a good example. Go read that one and see someone who's there complaining to God. And, of course, sometimes we have documents used in Scripture. The writer of Kings frequently will write some history down of a king. You know, say, the rest of the works of King so-and-so, are they not written down in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? He'll refer you to some other source that he's evidently used in writing his book. Or you can look at the book of Ezra, where we have bureaucratic documents and letters preserved. Or look at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke talks about the fact that a lot of people have tried to write accounts of the life of Jesus, but he's gone and he's searched the sources in order to make sure that his story is accurate. So Luke's done research, he's done his homework in order to write his gospel. The point of this is that when we take all of these different statements into account, we have to have a more dynamic model of inspiration than just thinking that God dictated verbatim every word in Scripture. And in fact, that sort of dictation couldn't preserve the different personalities of the writers that we see coming through at different points. Now, I'm not claiming to be able to explain how all of this worked, but that's the point. We need to be content to let some of this lie in the realm of mystery. The end result is all the same. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's useful. It's profitable in all of those ways that Paul lays out in 2 Timothy 3. That has two important corollaries that I want us to note before we close tonight. Sometimes uh, when you read up on inspiration or you hear lessons on inspiration, you might hear, two terms associated with it. That is, we'll talk about uh, verbal plenary inspiration. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology, that inspiration is verbal, inspiration is plenary. But it's important to know what that means because those ideas flow from what we've said tonight. Inspiration is plenary, and I don't know why they decided to use that word because it's not a word we ever use. i I didn't make up this terminology. (laughs) That means that it's full, it's complete, 
its entire. In other words, it's God-breathed in all of its parts. Some people will admit that, yeah, Scripture's inspired, but they'll want to loosen what inspiration means. They'll reduce it down to some of those human-type ways that we've talked about. That is, it's, it's some sort of religious experience. And in those parts, it reveals God to us, but in other parts, maybe not so much. This is a human product, and these parts of Scripture aren't inspired. That's not what Paul says, is it? He says all Scripture is breathed out by God. So this idea that inspiration is plenary, that means we can't go picking and choosing and saying this part is inspired, this part maybe not so much. No, all of it is inspired by God. Now, I want to be clear here. That doesn't require that everything in Scripture is true. Read through Job again. I mentioned Job already, but some of the statements of his friends are false. They're false views of God, and in fact, we know that by the end because God uh, puts the lie to what they say. Or look at Peter denying Jesus. It's true that Peter denied Jesus, but what Peter says about Jesus is, is not true, that he didn't know the man. Or you look at some of these oracles of pagan kings that we have recorded in Scripture. The point is not that these things didn't happen, but it doesn't mean that the point of view that they're conveying is the point of view of Scripture. Uh, my point is we always have to read things in context. You can't just read everything as flat and take it literally. You have to pay attention to context here so that, uh, well, the best example I can think of off the top of my head is the blind man who's healed and who says, now we know that God does not hear the prayer of sinners. I've heard lots of lessons on that, but I'm not so sure about that because that's the only time we have that said. And that person is not necessarily authoritative. We need to be really careful about just ripping things out of context. Or you go to Job's friends again. I know I keep drawing on them, but Job's friends make some really strong claims that Job must be a great sinner. But we know Job's not a great sinner. <laughs> And in fact, we know that the way they think God works, that if you're suffering, it's because you're a sinner. That's not, in fact, the way that it works. So we can't go, say, to the book of Job and see that, well, if you're suffering, you must be a sinner just by reading what his friends say because his friends are wrong. Now, it does mean that God wanted those things included for us because they help to teach us. So Scripture as a whole is inspired, that is, Part of the message they're conveying is profitable to us the way that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. It's useful. We can use it to learn. We can use it to uh, rebuke, etc. But it doesn't necessarily mean flatly that everything we read is true. We have to always pay attention to context. We have to pay attention to genre, realize that poetry is not necessarily to be taken literally etc. But we're getting into a whole other lesson here about interpretation. Second big corollary here. Inspiration is not only plenary, inspiration is verbal. That just means that it extends to the words themselves. Now that's not the same thing as saying it's mechanical. We've talked about that. It's not that the writers of scripture were just stenographers taking down everything God said literally. This isn't about method. 
That method's a mystery, remember. But this is about the importance of words. The words of Scripture should be taken as the words of God, the words of the Spirit. I mean, that's why this study we've been doing is so important, right? To dig in and to try to understand these words better because this is God's word. And he must have chosen these particular words for a reason. That means we need to study this, we need to know this, and we need to live this. The question for us this evening as we wrap up is, are we doing that? Are we diligent students of the inspired word as we ought to be? And not only are we students, do we just read this and it goes into our brain and then write out? Do we study this academically? Or do we take it and actually use it and let it mold and shape our lives? Let it be profitable for us the way that Paul says that it is. If not, then we need to make some changes. And if you need to do that in a public way this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.